everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 10, issue 470. And today we're going to talk about the original, the first, Jack and Daxter, the precursor legacy. And joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue are Brian Edwards. Hello. Joshua Garrity. Hello. And Ryan Heyman. Hey, Tim. Jack and Daxter, the precursor legacy. We'll issue a spoiler warning. I don't think it's ultra relevant i can't imagine many people are either playing this for the plot or if they're interested in the game don't know what the plot is i've just finished the game and i can't really remember it so (laughs) um, so we may not spoil it Uh, maybe maybe the others can help me out and i've got some notes anyway uh what is it for those who don't know have missed jack and daxter and it's a series that has gone quiet over the last Half a decade or more, in fact. It is a, the original at least, is a colourful 3D polygon platform collectathon adventure from Crash Bandicoot developers Naughty Dog, originally released for PlayStation 2. It was the first of a trilogy, uh, which also received three spin offs, the third of which I'd completely forgotten about until putting this show together. And I still can't remember what it's called. It wasn't by Naughty Dog. I think it was a Vita game. Lost Frontier. That's the one. Okay. We're not covering the whole series in this show. Whether we'll ever move on to Jack 2 and beyond is, um, well, wait and hear what we think about this one. (laughs) But um, given that the response, the critical response to Jack 2 and Jack 3 were slightly lesser, uh, I I would say it's not guaranteed that we'll ever talk about those sequels in an official Kane and Rince capacity. But you never know. They're on the list. They're still on the list. But what actually, how do we, how did we come to Jack and Daxter? Uh, why are we here? Brian? I remember when I got a PlayStation 2 in the year 2001, I was pretty amped for this game. I think if I remember correctly, the Game Informer coverage of this game compared it as, or at least suggested that it might be rival Super Mario 64 in some of its yeah. design and scope. Banjo-Kazooie-esque, yes. Yes, so I was, uh, and as a huge fan of Mario 64 and Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie, I was very excited just to see how the 3D platformer kind of evolved, like, both not just gameplay-wise and graphically. So I was in college at the time. I think I was a, a freshman in college when it came out. I received it for Christmas of that year, I believe. So either Christmas nice. 2001 or two, I can't remember. And then, yeah, played through it then. I remember having very, very high opinions of the game um, at the time I played it. And I think I've revisited it twice over the years. I picked up the Jack collection for PS4. And so I played through maybe, I don't know, an hour or two of it a few years back. And then I played through it again to completion leading up to this show. So and actually, I was able to um, spend the time with it and do it. We'll talk about the collectathon aspects of it later um, to collect everything in the game. I was able to get the platinum trophy this time around. So um, which was which was fun. Um, But yeah. So, yeah, I played through it probably two and a half times somewhere in that range. And shortly after release is when I first got it. Josh, have you just played it for the show? Yeah, I, this is my first time touching the game. Okay. It's one of those situations where, you know, I was always aware of Jack and Daxter, right? I'd always planned to play it at some point. Um, I saw the HD collection go on sale on PS3, like this was years ago, and yeah. I picked it up, downloaded it, never touched it. Yep. This was great motivation to finally play it. And here we are. You finished it today or yesterday? Today, like that. yeah. Right, there we go down to the wire. Ryan, how about you? I bet I bet you picked this up nearer the time, didn't you? Well, uh, you would think so, because this is the exact kind of game that I grew up playing. Like, I love 3D sure. platformers more than anything else in life, pretty much. Yeah. I did own a PS2, but for some reason, I only bought, like, 
seven games for it and some of them were like really weird choices too i i I can't really go back and justify my playstation 2 (laughs) consumption habits but uh any titles you'd care to share with us uh, i mean you know had to pick up harappa the rapper 2 but i have like a few oddities in the collection the godfather the game soul caliber 3 destroy all humans (laughs) 2 and it's like they're fine but that's not what you buy a ps2 for Mm, Maybe not. Which I bought a PS2 for Street Fighter EX3. Was that the 3D one? Anyways, not important. Yep, yep. yep. Anyway, so I, I didn't I didn't purchase this when I had a PlayStation 2. I kind of missed the big, like the three big series of PlayStation 2 kind of mascot platformers with uh, Ratchet, Clank, Sly Cooper, and Jack and Daxter. Mm. And uh, I, I don't know why. I just didn't really like, didn't stand out. Maybe it's just, you know, when you're young, when you're a kid, it's kind of like you play what your friends are playing. And if you don't have friends that are playing these particular games, like they can just entirely pass you by. But I, uh, I picked up actually all three of those aforementioned collections on the PlayStation 3. Um, I'm a bit upset that my uh, PS3 ownership of the Jack and Dexter collection doesn't transfer over to the PlayStation 4. I would have to buy it again fresh if I wanted yep. to play again Separate. on the new console. SKU, we'll talk about that. Yep, bit unfortunate. Although uh, I guess I could pick it up on uh, i could play it on vita with the license that i currently own but i guess it's not advisable it's not we'll talk about that too (laughs) but i I played this collection on the ps3 back in 2014 i say the collection i only played the first of the four games included uh, which i take it as not the correct way to approach the series but um I, i heard that you know two and three become increasingly ambitious as they go on and i probably did myself a disservice by skipping those but uh, i will go back to it eventually once i can kind of muster up the the cash to plunk down for the ps4 collection because i played uh, i did a little bit of revisiting over the past few days on the ps3 just to play through some of the uh, some of the levels of the um of this first jack and dexter game on that not original hardware but more original than it would be now yeah, I think it's just there's just a, a, a bit of uh, friction when it comes to playing on that old hardware that would just be so much so much alleviated by just you know being able to boot it up on the PlayStation Five instead. So I I do intend to get back to the rest of the series, but probably not on the console that I already own them on. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I I did buy this game. It was one of a very small handful of games that I bought when it was re- re-released on the Platinum label, the the budget half price, 20 quid label. Uh, I bought it at some point in 2002, so I didn't get it at the time. I think while I would have been, I, I definitely would have had my eyes on it. I think I had a certain, outside of Rare's work, I had a certain anti-Western developed 3D platformer snobbery probably going on. Partly not just not just the actual the 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 feel of the game and and so on in in uh yeah in the sort of the western three d platformer space sometimes not being what I expected or hoped for, but also I often found the characters like crash bandicoot like gex and and all those others just not very endearing or appealing Jack and Daxter in themselves just looking at the box art i didn't I didn't find them a complete turn off like some some of the the famous western platform characters but equally they didn't quite draw me in in the same way that uh, that banjo kazooie had managed to do with their sort of sheer goofy charm but yes for whatever reason uh, and also i think the other thing was uh, towards the end of 2001 there were an insane amount of 
games that I had to, I just had to have straight away. I think it was Silent Hill 2, Devil May Cry, GTA 3 was at then as well. And uh, I just ended up spending an enormous amount of money late 2001 on games. And I think Jack and Daxter kind of didn't make the cut. When I did buy it on that uh, budget re-release, I remember very distinctly playing it for a day, playing it up to 50% completion on uh, on PS2 and thinking that was quite fun. I'll finish that off at some point. Then I didn't for whatever reason, never went back to it. I, I was looking on my spreadsheet at the time and I, I gave it a seven out of 10, uh, which and that was 20 years ago. So I did buy the HD trilogy on PS3 and that's where I've revisited it. I bought it when it first came out in 2012 and now I've got around to playing some of it uh, all these years later. Uh, and I've yeah, I played it up to 90% completion this time. I completed the game, as in I finished off the final boss. I left myself with a good day or a day and a half to go and mop up the collectibles. And I did have one session of that, but I found it quite boring and annoying. So I didn't get around to doing the 100%, I'm afraid. But uh, game was finished anyway. And yeah, I mean, Jack 2 and 3, as I say, we're not we're not covering them. But, uh, but as I understand it, they're less in the same kind of cutesy, charming uh, genre. They went down the road that a lot of sequels of the era did, which was to go a bit darker and a bit grittier. They went a bit ratchet and clank with having a weapon the whole time. They went a bit GTA as well with kind of uh, a roaming populace of of citizens that you could kill and stuff like this. Uh, So... Yeah, I think they were they were quite ambitious those sequels, and I think a lot they certainly had their fans. But here we are for now, and it is Naughty Dog, of course. Back then, really known for Crash Bandicoot above other things, I would say. Development on Jack and Daxter began in January '99 as Project Y, as the rest of the Naughty Dog team were working on Crash Team Racing. Only two programmers were allocated to the Jack and Daxter project or Project Y. The rest of the team began work on Jack as well after the release of the PS2. Eventually, 35 developers worked on the game. Because of the PS2 status as a new console, Naughty Dog felt they had to create a unique character for it. The game was in development for almost three years, and throughout this time, numerous changes were made to almost every aspect, while the various engines used in the game were all tweaked to optimise performance. Engine tweaks allowed Jack and Daxter to have no loading times or fogging, and to be able to display high-quality textures in a seamless multi-level world. That's from Wikipedia. There was a piece uh, just recently released on Games Radar Plus. The same reason, really, as we're covering Jack and Daxter this year is because it's 20 years old, later in the year, but uh, but 20 years in 2021. This was by Alex Avard. This was in March 21. March 2021, it says Jack and Daxter was the product of a studio in flux coming off the back of three Crash Bandicoot games and knee deep in production on Crash Team Racing. Andy Gavin and his fellow Naughty Dog co-founder Jason Rubin were eager to do something different. Our relationship with Universal had gotten to the point where we couldn't continue to make Crash Bandicoot games, Rubin tells me. Although we loved Crash Bandicoot and we loved working with Sony, it didn't make any financial sense. Universal owned the IP and there was a hostility there that was just brutal. So multiple reasons that uh, Jack and Daxter is Jack and Daxter and not Crash 3D or Crash 4 or whatever it would have been. Sony published it, but this was just before. Or did they they maybe did they buy them during this process or after this process? I'm not sure. But uh, Naughty Dog at least started Project Y as uh, still as a third party studio. Director of the game is Jason Rubin. 
who was uh, key on uh, things like uh, Naughty Dog's earlier game Rings of Power for the Mega Drive and the Crash Bandicoot trilogy. Designer was Evan Wells, who came off of Gex with, uh, that was Crystal Dynamics, was it? The early Gex games, I think. Then went on to Naughty Dog for Crash Bandicoot Warped and nowadays is the co-president of Naughty Dog. The coders, as I say, were co-founder of Naughty Dog, Andy Gavin, who went back, obviously, to the beginning with the studio and things like Keith the Thief and the Crash Bandicoot trilogy. And also worked on the coding was one Mark Cerny, legendary of Marble Madness, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, Ratchet and Clank and the PlayStation 4 console. The game was released on the PS2 in December 2001, December 3rd in America, December 7th in PAL territories. But hallelujah, the PAL version was replete with a 60 hertz option, so we didn't get an inferior game for once. Let's hear from our first correspondent in this podcast. It's Matten Zvi from the forum, who says, Being a fan of the Crash Bandicoot series, I was pretty hyped when I read in a German video game magazine called Screen Fun that Naughty Dog were developing a new game for the upcoming PS2. It must have been my 14th birthday in February 2002 when I finally got my PS2 bundled with Jack and Daxter. As a 14-year-old, I kept the game as a secret. My friends at school were playing Tekken Tag Tournament or Resident Evil 3 while I was still playing platformers like I used to do since I was six. But Jack and Daxter was so much more than just a platformer. Without any loading screens and seamless transitions from all these areas, the game felt vast and authentic. To this day, I think that Jack and Daxter is a very pretty and polished game and I'm pretty sure that Naughty Dog were pushing the PS2 to its limits. Maybe I would have wanted some creepier foes even though the piranha was quite scary. Hearing Jack's heartbeat and the grunt of this predator gives me the creeps, like a drowning Sonic or a choking Isaac Clarke. Despite the lush environment, the game sure has some downsides. The story never felt appealing for me, and I can't really remember what it was about. I could never relate to the hatred our protagonists had towards the lurkers. I thought they were cute monkeys minding their own business, and I felt terrible when I killed them with a roundhouse kick. And oddly enough, many foes weren't really connected to the story or the main villains either. The hoverbike sections felt exciting and fresh for the first 10 minutes and became increasingly more tedious and almost unfair the further I got. I remember saving the game when I've made it through them and calling it a day because they were that nerve-wracking. And as exciting as the beach and jungle were in the first level, as dull and lifeless the levels become in later stages, especially the mines in the end. Ugh. Jack and Daxter defined the PS2 era for me. Despite all of its shortcomings, I still prefer it to the other entries in the series and have some great memories. Coming home from school, playing Jack and Daxter and listening to Blink-182. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> the PS3 HD remastered trilogy was handled by conversion and remaster specialist Mass Media Games. That came out in February and March 2012, nine years ago. Metacritic score for that was uh, 81, whereas it was 90% for the original PS2 game back in uh, back at the time of release. The PS3 version is a remaster, fulfilling the terms of that uh, rather than being uh, just a straight port. It's got uh, 1080p high definition visuals, uh, higher quality textures, fully playable in stereoscopic 3D. Remember that for a thrilling new Jack and Daxter experience. (laughs) Uh, if you've got the kit, <laughs> full PlayStation 3 trophy support, smooth gameplay animation running at 60 frames per second, which actually the original targeted and hit much of the time anyway. From the Jack and Daxter wiki, 
When porting the game, mass media ran into many problems due to several tricks that were both expected and unexpected behind the game's code. Mass media attempted to rewrite as little of the code as possible in order to retain the essence of the game. Despite warning the studio that the project would be impossible, Naughty Dog later commended mass media for the project, designer Evan Wells saying that they did a fantastic job of piecing together that spaghetti. However, the Vita version, which is more of a conversion than a remaster, uh, as such, uh, although it was, I think, part of the same project that was released in June 2013. If you'd already bought the PS3 version, you automatically, uh, digitally anyway, you automatically owned it, which was uh, a bonus. But the Metacritic score for that one is 67. Uh, and that will tell you that uh, there are some serious performance issues with the game running at a N64, like 20 frames a second and no higher, which is a bit of a shame. The PS4 version arrived in 2017. That is emulation of the PS2 version, effectively upscaled. So the PS4 version renders at 1024 by 448, whereas the PS3 remaster actually renders at a, a, a much smoother looking 1024 by 720. And the PS Vita version is 720 by 405. Uh, there are some issues on the PS4 version with lag and stutter and some behavior glitches, including the movement of the character Jack being locked to eight or 16 directions compared to 256 or more. The original analog controls on the PS2 and PS3. I have no idea why that is, but I watched a speedrunner saying that it essentially renders the game impossible for speedruns, as you could imagine. But yes, that original version was very well received at the time, garnering an average review score on game rankings of 90%. And the game won the Guinness World Record Gamers Edition Award for the first seamless 3D world in a console game. And I tried to think about this in case they hadn't done their due diligence. I think there's a few semantic issues about what, what seamless means, but I think they're probably right. I mean, it's not seamless. Like there are points where you like take a boat to go to a different island. Cut scenes, but you're still, but it's still all in engine and it comes, it just goes in and out of the engine, doesn't it? But you're not in control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of the transition areas too. I mean, um, seem to maybe have some breaks there that just like kind of they they mask it like it just kind of like cuts quick you know like almost so quick you can't mm. tell but but yeah i the, the the only section of that that i really thought might have cheesed over that ranking a little bit or that uh award a little bit was the the boat to misty island but, yeah. mm. but you're right you do see it off in the distance i know it's rendered a lot so i guess technically it's there um so but it's no doubt it was uh, was impressive for the time anyway. We'll talk more about that. User reviews for the game. Uh, these are lying around on the internet now. We've got uh, PlayStation gamers on Push Square have it with an average of 8.7 out of 10. And on the IMDb, it has 8.6 out of 10. So people still think it's pretty excellent on the whole. Sales-wise, uh, no idea what's happened as regards to the re-releases on PS3 and PS4. But as of 2007... Jack and Daxter, the original on the PS2, had sold almost 2 million copies in the US alone. That's the only data I could find out about sales from Wikipedia. Expect the unexpected. Enter a new world of magic, adventure, exploration and discovery where enormous vistas and exotic characters lead you to places beyond your imagination. Test your wits and your skills as you embark on a journey to reverse your best friend's transformation into a furry otzel, even as he entangles you in his amusing antics. 
Discover twisted corruption and battle the sinister minds behind this chilling plot. Light Eco, Precursor Technology, Power Cells, Dark Eco. What does it all mean? Only one person holds the secret behind the power of the mysterious Eco. Together you must now take on these endeavours. Unleash the hero within. A new legacy is born. <laughs> well, that about covers it. Yeah, what does that mean to... Um, it's, it, it, it is funny how much, like there is in terms of backstory and how much there is in terms of texture that there that is there that is present within the game but factors about zero percent in the minute to minute play of, <laughs> yeah. uh, of this game i i only remembered that there, were, there was a story when the game remembered there was a story most of the time and the the you know the villainous plot it really I, I don't think it really crystallized until like the last hour of the game that they really had a plan at all. Mm. It's really odd. And certainly transforming Dexter into that little weasel thing wasn't a part of the plot, like, or wasn't a part of the villainous plot. No. Like he just kind of accidentally fell into a dark eco. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody was just kind of like really way too accepting of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like the only person who's been horribly negatively affected by dark ego, they're just you know, dragging on him the entire time, every time he comes around, because people just find him annoying. Um, but it doesn't tie to anything tangible in the story, other than it just serves as the MacGuffin to give you a, you know, cutesy ride along, you know, quote unquote comic relief. And it's written off so, like, that motivation is written off so quickly at the end of the game. It's like, well, we could use this to cure Daxter. No, okay, we're not going to do that. He's going to be like this forever. And it's such a casual choice. And it's so funny from Naughty Dog because, like, modern Naughty Dog I associate with, like, really strong character writing and <laughs> yeah. really strong, you know, motivated individuals within within yes. their games. And for it to be just brushed aside so casually even in like I, i'm not you know even in a kid's game right even in a game like i'd expect like quality characterization from a pixar film right i'd expect that from a dreamworks film and this certainly feels like it's you know aiming for that and it for it to just not be present at all is really puzzling especially seeing as what you know seeing what they went on to later on yeah for sure i think there's some there's some precedent set there too to get the player playing the game super quickly yeah that you know especially in the 3d platformer space you know it's just kind of like i mean not to use to use basically the original example the good you know come to the castle i've baked a cake for you and then you come out of the ground and there you go you know you're just kind of going in mario 64 and i could see why they would want to do that they want get like just get right to you know you controlling the characters as quick as possible but then to expect you to care a lot about why this dark eco is important and how it's corrupting the world that there's not a there's not a good marriage of the actual story with the theme of what you're going to be doing throughout the entirety of the game doesn't mm. so the story kicks off against samos's warnings jack and dax to make their way to the forbidden misty island there they see two unknown figures ordering the lurkers to gather eco 
and precursor artifacts. The duo worried by what they're seeing, prepared to leave, but are soon discovered by a lurker guard. Jack manages to kill it with an explosive device, but the resulting explosion sends Daxter into the pool of dark eco. He emerges transformed into an Otzel, a fictional hybrid of an otter and weasel, but is otherwise unharmed. <laughs> Returning to their home of Sandover Village, they seek help from Samos. Samos explains that only Gol Asheron, the Dark Sage, can reverse the transformation. So yeah, Daxter, I would argue, although he's not who you control, you control Jack. Daxter is the main character. So, I mean, Jack is you, a silent, almost silent protagonist, apart from uh, some grunts and effort noises and things like that. Daxter is the comedy sidekick influenced by uh, specifically by Disney sidekicks such as uh, Mushu from Mulan and uh, Abu from Aladdin. Naughty Dog apparently wanted Chris Rock to voice Daxter, but Chris Rock refused the offer and or they couldn't afford him. So Max Casella is he who got the gig. I know him best, and I didn't realise this, as Vinny, Doogie Howser MD's mate <laughs> from Doogie Howser MD. I would not have been able to make that connection, but I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, he's been, you know, he's a busy actor. He's got 90 odd uh, credits. Uh, he was in The Sopranos and, and you know, he was also in other games like uh, GTA 4 and things like this. So uh, obviously a, a talented voice actor for the sassy, wisecracking guy. Uh, but uh, do we like Daxter uh, as a character? Do we enjoy his, his wacky sidekick antic? So this is a funny one for me because I think the vocal performance is... I think it's really good, right? But like mm -hmm. it's a really professional, well-acted performance. Yeah. But I hate Daxter with every <laughs> fiber of my being. <laughs> every time I died, like I was just, you know, you roll the dice so like hopefully this is the time where Daxter doesn't show up to say anything <laughs> after I've died yeah. and it just takes me back to the previous checkpoint. Every time it I I rolled, you know, um below 10 and and got Daxter uh, it's just it drew drew, drew uh, drove me up the wall um he's also massively misogynist as well yeah like mm. all the way through this game he's just leering at the female character i mean the female characters are not particularly well designed we'll probably get onto that but like bring it in now by all means kira is really uh, is is, is yeah. uh, there are, uh, kira's the main one she's the daughter of the uh, of your of your uh, explainer man who yeah. sends you off on your quest, uh, and she's obviously you know she's capable and cool in that she's the mechanic and you know very progressive in that way and all that kind of thing, but also she has like the minuscule waist and the the bucks and bust and pretty much as soon as Daxter has been turned from his so we should say actually for those who haven't got any visual hold on this the the non weasel characters are kind of elf-like they're a bit like gelflings out of the dark crystal they've got yeah. kind of they're humanoid but they've got long ears but they do have pale skin mostly and and yeah she is a kind of archetypally sexualized character within a cuddly cartoon world i suppose and yeah daxter the minute he's turned into an otzel is still a yeah a creepy perv <laughs> and i think this this is the the difference between because they're drawing inspiration from characters like Mushu and I'd it, like I'd actually throw Timon from um, the Lion King in there as right, well. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. 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 The thing that they're missing is that like at the core of Timon, at the core of Mushu, there is like a heart there, 
and there is something uh, about you know beyond all the gags, beyond all the hijinks, a bit of that pathos, people, yeah. yeah, that people latch onto. You care about Timon by the end of um, you uh, both Timon and Pumbaa and their relationship by the end of the Lion King because he's more than just a, a gag machine, whereas mm. Daxter just is a vessel for quite mediocre to bad jokes all the Obnoxious way through jokes. and he just becomes infuriating as well animated as he is yeah <laughs> so i i don't remember disliking jacks uh daxter that much when i played it originally um but recently i did find him n- near insufferable and I think I think it really does go to what Josh already talked about was those post death animations. I am so used to now and call me mm. the modern gamer who's very lucky to have an Xbox Series X that loads everything in what feels like a fraction of a second. I just want to get back to because like, I clearly just died doing something, probably collecting something. I'm going to have to go back to wherever I was to get to get there to get these orbs or whatever. And I just want to get back into the game. And when he pops up over your eyes gets ready to deliver one of the, you know, the 10 recycled screens. It just, it's enough to just put you off. Like, I just like, I'm going to walk away from this, but you know, you just, it just kind of, you know, you, it's one of those scenes that you, you're slamming X through, even though, you know, it's not going to do anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I honestly think at the time, some people would have been looking forward to those scenes as a treat, right. at least for the first, the first couple of times of each one of each gag until you'd seen them all, because that stuff would have been a real novelty. But yeah, the the novelty wears off. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I really didn't mind Dexter that much. I didn't find him funny, but at the same time, he he was so like. I think we're going to get into this when it comes to animation. I I don't know yeah. if I am going to have a easy time saying that this game is well animated or that the animation is good, but it is done very like technically interestingly. Like it's very eye catching. Yeah. Um, I have some problems mm-hmm. with the direction of a lot of the animation, but like it's it's. It's very exciting to look at, and Dexter is really the point of focus of a lot of the kind of animational chops. And um, yeah. I love him not only in the cutscenes, um, just the way that he moves and the way that he animates, and just having this big kind of expressive character, um, but uh, also in the platforming sections, like how he's always kind of hanging off of Jack and all, all the different things mm. that he does as far as, you know being whipped back and forth when you're doing kind of tricky platformer sections, like all of that, you know, all of that animation feels like it needs to land somewhere. And without Daxter, this game really would have struggled to have much of a visual identity at all. Um, Mm. I I don't find the like elf like people to be that interesting to look at. I find Jack's design to, or yeah, Jack, (laughs) I find Jack's design to be a little like, clashing colors not entirely pleasing but i think jack's daxter kind of pulls it all together in a way and so i don't necessarily love his like performance as a character but i i think he's necessary without i i don't think that i would be thinking about this game so many years on i mean i i would go further than you ryan and say that the animation for daxter is actually really incredible uh, even now, even like obviously the the character model has aged significantly and it's a bit more polygonal than we would have now. But the way they use what they have for that that time, I think is absolutely exceptional. And this is my 
kind of conflict of this character is on a technical level, both like the animation, the design, even the the voice acting is really strong. I think my problem is it's the script. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's it's what's written on the page that bothers me so much. We should credit uh, animator John Kim, I believe, did all of uh, pretty much all of Daxter's animations. And apparently they uh, this was the first game that Naughty Dog were using their a system where they had actual actual characters with um, internal flexible skeletons rather than keyframing the outside of characters. They're kind of working from within to give them more life, which yeah. I think is more the way things are done nowadays, In it, albeit with billions more polygons now. You, you can really see it in those scenes too that we were just, or at least I was just complaining about. It's, he, he has a the face the facial animations have like a satisfying stretchiness to them like the way his Mm -hmm. eyes will elongate and kind of squint down it's all looks very uh very like yeah pixar disney you say use your comparisons it's just it has a readability that you can you instantly associate with like cartoony um humorous characters it looks like 2d animation like you never see this kind of thing in 3d like it's really impressive and it comes even from the splash screen at the start of the game where he's like doing as the Naughty Dog logo is coming across as the game's looking up, he's doing the dancing and he gets knocked over by the logo and everything like it, it just you could tell. And even and back then, I, I remember feeling this way that like that the medium was evolving in, a, in such a way to mm-hmm. they were getting so much more actual emotional readability out of these character models. And you can say that the same thing about um I got the explainer guy that you said, Leon, uh, Samos, like the way his eyebrows and eyes kind of move up and he kind of looks down the, you know, the brow of his nose at Jack and Daxter, like when he's chastising them for whatever, you know, antic they had just uh, committed. And, and you could just the way that those faces and eyes specifically react was something I don't remember having seen done that well in a game before then. And it does kind of. Like when you look for the naughty dog in this game in big, big quotes, that's where I see the naughty dog in this game yeah. is those animations and the way those characters look and react. It's 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 still I was saying I think I was saying a couple of weeks ago we were talking about this game leading up to the show that Daxter's facial animations are still impressive to me. Like there are games now that don't do facial animations as well as Daxter looked, you know, given given the, the constraints of the time period. Halo Fandango from the forum says, for me, this is a very enjoyable platformer, which holds up pretty well today. The characters are top notch and made me laugh every time they were on screen, especially when Jack and Daxter collected each power cell. Every character is just brimming with personality and charm, ranging from the strange villains. Gol Asheron is actually voiced by Twisted Sisters. D. Snyder. I never knew that. To the quirky mayor you meet in Sandover Village. The game simply made me smile. So of course, subjective when it comes to characters and script and uh, how much the humour works on you will vary wildly depending on your taste and uh, what tickles your ribs. Mr. Ixalite says, my main gripes are the music. We'll talk about that separately in a bit, which while by no means bad, feels like Crash Bandicoot B-sides and with Daxter himself who suffers from major Shrek syndrome. I don't think he has a single line that isn't him being cynical, abrasive or crass. The grumpy Samus is towing the line in terms of being unlikable, but Daxter is always way across it. Taking damage from a hazard is bad enough without Daxter shrieking admonishments at you. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? He's I mean, he's a he's a vocal tutorial at times, which is sometimes appreciated because he'll say how you deal with a particular enemy or sometimes even how yeah, what you're 
what your kind of aim is in 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 a particular section. Yeah, I, but specifically, I can uh, the example I think of is from the swamp level where I was even this third time through completely stumped on where to go next, and and just like right on cue, Daxter was like, "Hey, look, a jump pad. I bet that'll get us to the next area." I was like, "Oh, okay, thanks, Daxter." <laughs> you know, and then and then move on there. He he does he does work in that you know active onboard tutorial throughout the game, which which can be useful and. Um, but, but he does, she does shout at you when you, you know, fall in a pit. <laughs> Again, this is from the Games Radar Plus article from a couple of months ago at the time of recording from Alex Avard. Jack himself, however, wouldn't utter a word throughout the entire game, though eventually found a voice by the time of his 2003 sequel. Rumid admits that Jack's silence was another ultimatum he pushed for at Naughty Dog, motivated by the proven popularity of mute protagonists in video games at the time, and, more importantly, a need to keep players involved and fully immersed with the character. The feeling was that if you're playing the character and they tell a bad joke, you then distance yourself from that character. Gex was the perfect example of that at the time, a game that was quite accomplished, that you didn't want to play because of the distance between you and that horribly just-not-you character. Daxter's pretty loquacious, for example, but if you didn't like Daxter, that was fine. That's Daxter, not you. Once you have a character that is unburdened from the player's connection, you can have him be annoying, and you can have him be kind of out there, and those characters are always way more interesting than the straight-played alternatives. Any thoughts on that? Uh, and And... The the whole silent protagonist versus vocalized or voiced uh, protagonist is has always been a, a divider among whoever's on the Kane and Rince team. Some people like, love a silent protagonist. Some people hate it. I, I think so. I, I like silent protagonists when it's from a, a particular when it's in a particular style or genre. So, for example, I I, I always defend Gordon Freeman being silent in the mm. Half Life Two series because. First of all, I feel like I'm Gordon Freeman. And then second of all, it allows the the world to take center stage and allows me to soak in everything without the constant quips of Nathan Drake or, you know, something like that kind of being a barrier to that. I just feel completely immersed. Whereas there's something like this, um, I do find Jack's complete silence a little bit weird when the world and and the characters in it are so exaggerated and so um over the top um even mario who doesn't say much says enough to convey personality whereas jack i didn't need him to speak whole lines of dialogue but it would have been nice if there was more to jack than just this kind of bland character that he ends up being i mean he says ow what more do you want oh, true <laughs> <laughs> I kind of agree with Josh. It, Jack feels like he's kind of at odds with the world um, just because like people are talking to him and they seem kind of disappointed that he's not saying anything back. Uh, I mean, it turns out that, you know, he talks in later games and he's a bit of an asshole. And so maybe it's better that he kind of keeps his mouth <laughs> shut for now. But it uh, yeah. just I don't know, like I lo- I don't have like a super strong prescriptive opinion about whether silent protagonists are good and bad, but there are times when it fits with the world, like in a lot of RPGs and, uh, you know, like in Pokemon, like I'm not really concerned that my character isn't spouting lines and even Gordon Freeman, like I think that suits the environment just fine. But when it seems like other characters have spoken to our character in the past and he's just not speaking now, or like there's some sort of a like everyone else is so verbatious and then just one person is just kind of like sitting out of the party. It just feels 
it feels kind of awkward. Essel37 from the forum says, visually character designs for both Jack and Daxter are fine, but when it comes to personality, Jack has absolutely nothing. And Daxter, while certainly more charismatic, is only tolerable in extremely small doses. And I'm no prude, but the female character designs were a disgrace. As for the story, I've played the game through twice now and I can't remember what the plot was or who the antagonists were. (laughs) There's a theme. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interestingly, I thought from IMDb trivia, originally there was going to be a third main character that would develop as the game was played in a Tamagotchi style. Instead, Naughty Dog concentrated their efforts on two main characters in order to create the exact characters they wanted. Who knows what that would have ended up like, but uh, curious. Visually then... Art design, graphics, and and technically, visually, I think the game on PS3 still looks pretty nice. Mm. Uh, I think it's I think the use of color is 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 pretty mm-hmm. great. Um, it's 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 quite pleasing on the eye, uh, and obviously things like the textures and shaders have all aged. But actually, as a cartoon world. I think it stands up really rather well. That that HD version, especially, I haven't been back to the PS2 version. But again, doesn't it doesn't do anything especially original? Obviously, you've got a you've got a cave and you've got a lava cave. You've got a, a snowy bit and you've got a jungly bit and you've got a grassy bit and a sandy bit. And I suppose you want that in in a in a 3D adventure platformer, in a sense. But I didn't find any of the while I, I found all the locations, yeah, fairly easy on the eye, especially as it all runs at 60 frames a second. It's all very visually clear. The draw distance is impressive. There's no sort of technical issues in that regard. But again, I just the concept art, uh, interestingly, uh, that you can look up is uh, not in not as part of the game. I should add, there's no unlockables like that. I don't think uh, this is just from online resources. Looks uh, like it's done by, as you'd expect from Naughty Dog Studio, incredibly talented artists. Like they are one of the studios who, when I do unlock concept art in their games, Uncharted or Last of Us, I will actually sit there and gaze at it in awe. And the concept art, I think, for Jack and Daxter looks really impressive. And even though the game looks nice, I just maybe it is the technical, maybe it is the slight lack, you know, the lack of vegetation, the lack of variety in the detail. But it, I still. Maybe it's the age I came to it as well. Maybe just being a few years younger when I played Banjo-Kazooie. I don't know. There's only three years in it. But I just felt there was a slight lack of personality. I think the 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 problem for me is that the environments are all pretty expected. Mm. And there's a lack of density to those environments, if that makes sense. Like... If like even Mario games kind of close to the era era, so I, I'm really talking about Mario Sunshine here. I felt like Mario Sunshine had, for for all its faults, it had like a density of visual intrigue, and it had it like really vibrant, exciting places to explore um, and to look at. Um, obviously, they'll blow they that you know Mario blows that out of the water when it goes you know goes into the galaxy territory mm. um but even then it was doing stuff that was really exciting whereas here like what's there looks really good i agree with you uh, i think the um the foliage looks great i think the animals look great the the enemy designs all of that stuff it all it all works um it just it's not exciting it's not it's not invi- visually intriguing in the way that I want from a 3D platformer. Ryan, you're a fan of the fantastical and the whimsical. 
Did this game tick those boxes or did it feel a little bit too safe and almost RPG-like in some ways? I kind of have a hard time making my mind up about this. Um, There's a lot of really impressive art direction and a lot of really impressive animation, even on the kind of incidental stuff, like the ways that the objects around you like the treasure chest and stuff react to you charging yourself with that kind of electrical eco like Mm. that's that's it's really good and there's a lot of really good just little touches like that in the environment and the way that the enemies move i i kind of like the way that the snakes pop down from the trees like little things like that that just kind of add up over time but at the same time the the stages feel like on one hand it feels like there's not enough surprises like the stages themselves are too naturalistic to be memorable and interesting it also kind of like suffers from the ultimate or from the uh opposite problem of feeling like there's very little sense of kind of visual coherency kind of tying all the designs together into kind of one central theme because you know i think about rares 3d platformers like um, donkey kong 64 and banjo kazooie and you know they would introduce a variety of a variety of all sorts of different characters and enemies and stuff like that but every one of them made sense within the world that they were contained in and they all kind of felt like they were drawing from the same kind of storybook kind of logic i mean there's some examples in banjo tooie that get away from that but at least from that original game yeah, and this one, like, I, I kind of had a harder time putting my finger on, like, what is the, like, what is the kind of central thesis that ties all of this together visually? Uh, but it's, yeah, so mm. I, I think it's good work, but it's just, I didn't find it to be that memorable. Um, even in Crash Bandicoot, yeah. like, there was, like, each level was so heavily themed. You'd go in your medieval stages, your ice stages, your, you know, Great Wall of China stages and everything in those worlds felt like it was working towards that kind of thematic goal. But um, yeah, I, I just I just didn't quite get that same sense of kind of unified direction in Jack and Dexter. Yeah, I the thing you were saying about the eco powers, Ryan, I I really agree with and have to echo and even uh, to add to a little bit. The, I think some of the way that the art and the the kind of effects from that eco like funnel into your movements and the animation and how things are just a little bit more exaggerated have that extra color to them to the things like the jump pad the way that angle hits and the animation of the characters kind of flying through the air almost you know uh, flopping around and come back down and the way that you move when you're powered up it really does add a lot of character to the world around you like you said the boxes will like jingle and explode and you you'll get that wonderful effect where maybe you'll get be around some precursor orbs and a few boxes and an enemy and they they swirl around you and kind of that tornado and like to collect them and it really it, it shows you like that everything was firing on all cylinders and there's a lot going on on screen and that that does those are those wow moments that from this game that i remember from them and now that you know sometimes there's a lot of stuff going on on screen and and it's amazing kind of what they were able to accomplish um so that i while i was kind of being negative about the world design which i still feel that way it does there are those moments within world that maybe not everything's measured up together but they do interact sometimes in ways that Mm -hmm. like is very satisfying i think about the world design as well and maybe this is an entirely separate subject if we get to level design later but um 
like I think about the levels in Banjo Kazooie and how each of them were kind of built around kind of visual landmarks that you can see from almost anywhere in the level. And so you always had a great sense of kind of where you were and how to get to anywhere else that you want to be. And if you think about Mumbo's Mountain, there's always just those two mountains you can see from everywhere with very clear kind of visual distinguishing elements. And you always know which direction to go, you know, Treasure Trove Cove, uh, Clanker's Cavern, like all of these levels are so easy to navigate because there are these like clear lines of direction and sub areas and uh, visual landmarks that you can see from a mile away. In this one, like the worlds felt so kind of naturalistic that it, even though there was quite a bit of kind of crossing back on the path that you walked on earlier, it wasn't like as linear an affair as like a Crash Bandicoot level would be previously. You know, it didn't it didn't feel as like intentional and it didn't feel as like anchored in, you know, two or three really strong design decisions per level that informed the rest of the level design uh, rather than just kind of feeling like a little little meandery and uh, a little kind of unmemorable. It's like, have I been on these exact platforms before? I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, I feel like. I don't want to be overly harsh because, as I say, I, I think for a 20-year-old game, playing at least playing the 10-year-old the version on a PS3, I think it, it does hold up pretty well as something to look at in terms of readability and clarity and colour and uh, and the animation and, and all that kind of thing. But yes, I think these, these criticisms we're levelling at it are, are fair also. But yes, uh, on the technical side... Uh, I don't think it can be understated just how impressive it is, despite those debatable sections like the cable car and the boat to the island. The fact that you can pretty much walk from the beginning of the game to the end with no loading, even now, like we're, we're, we're I think a lot of us uh, with the new gen machines really appreciating, Brian mentioned it earlier, like super fast loading, that sort of, uh, that immediacy that you get uh, to have a game that loaded from a disc wasn't a cartridge and and you could stick it in your PS2 and and kind of walk the expanse of this pretty large game area from from beginning to end was probably more impressive 20 years ago than it is today but still quite appreciated. Yeah, there were some games for PlayStation 2 and I I I particularly remember Grand Theft Auto 3 and Vice City being the main offenders of this where I'd get a loading screen and I would like go get a drink. You know, like I would like oh, yeah. hit a loading screen. I just walk away, get a glass of water. You know, I wouldn't have any text messages or Internet to scroll on my phone at the time uh, to distract me for the loading screen. And, and then I'd come mm-hmm. back and it would be, you know, I'd be sitting there at the screen and, and to not have this was a real not even it, it just was unlike anything else. So, uh, yeah, that can't be understated, like you said, Leon. And that still has an impact when playing it now, because I just. You when you're playing games of a certain age or from a certain area era, excuse me, you just kind of come to expect those loading screens in certain areas. And like that first time I walked from the the initial village that you're in to the beach area and the the name of the area just popped underneath and I just kept walking right through Mm. and went to the beach. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is awesome. You know, I can just kind of pop back and forth, do a couple things. And you feel like you're just getting around a lot quicker than uh, you would have been in other games of the time. So still still very much appreciated. Joe Bobinobo from our forum types. This was the game that made me stand up and take notice of the PS2. The creators of Crash Bandicoot making a new open world 3D platformer. Sign me up. 
The graphics, especially at the time, were gorgeous, showcasing a wide variety of lush environments. Jack controlled wonderfully with the jumping and running feeling just right to explore this world. The levels were tightly designed with a nice mixture of crash-type platforming segments mixed with more banjo-type exploration and collecting elements to make going through each location a ton of fun. The amount of collectibles was just right, so collecting was fun and engaging, not work. The variety of different animations that played whenever you collected a power cell was one of the elements of Jack and Daxter that made me think this could not be done on a PS1 or an N64. But the biggest technical achievement of the game, one which still impresses me to this day and which has rarely been repeated in future platformers, is the seamless transition from one world to another. It's done so naturally in how one minute you could be chasing pelicans on the beach and the next you're jumping over spiked pits in the jungle and if you climb this mountain you are now in a completely new world with its own set of objectives and collectibles. Helping make this feel even more like a living, breathing world was that you could see many of these future locales in the distance as you were going through the current area, which really made this so much more immersive than what came before it. Ironically, I remember the soundtrack being completely forgettable. It was clearly going for a more atmospheric type of sound, but seemed to lack any hook to, to it to, that make the soundtracks of the likes of Metroid or Donkey Kong Country so effective. Jack himself, being a silent protagonist, I'm fine with, but it does make him a bit less memorable than other characters. Daxter is easily the most useless platforming sidekick I've ever come across, just an annoying, perverted loudmouth who makes you wonder how anyone can stand to be in his company at all. Kazooie is also an asshole, but she gets away with it because she is genuinely funny and she is vital to your progress in the banjo games. Clank is also useful and his dry, deadpan manner also makes him a hell of a lot more endearing as a sidekick than this mangy Otzel. However, Daxter being a plonker does not detract from the overall solid gameplay this title has to offer and Jack and Daxter is definitely up there as one of my favourite 3D platformers on the PS2. And there is a lot of competition on that console, so I don't say that easily. I want to talk about the audio. While it may not be the the, the least pleasant example of, of this the, that I've ever heard, uh, for me, this game suffers with the same thing that so many, I don't know why, but particularly PS1 and PS2 platformers were upset. Actually, and this, this kind of goes to a lot of Western developed platformers on earlier machines as well, 16-bit era, the obsession with just using what sound like very s slightly scratchy library samples for collecting noises. Yeah. They just sound like things that they've got off an old sound effects record. Whereas in a, in a Mario game or something, you'd always get these deliciously bespoke, satisfying, slapping, popping, jumping, hitting, interacting noises with everything. These games always do this thing where, yeah, like, you know, you pick up, a little sparkly orb of something and you just get this horrible generic muffly kind of tinkle noise it's it's obviously it's a hard thing to describe in words when we're talking about specific sounds but it's something that i really strongly associate with the likes of spire of the dragon mm -hmm. and uh and, and other games of its ilk and, and this has a lot of that going on like there's some decent ambient noise in in you know jungle areas and snowy mountains and things like that but but the actual noises for doing stuff and collecting stuff i think are so weak and then yeah. when you factor in the uh, the I, I, th I think it follows through to the the sort of the punching and kicking noises as well. They sound completely kind of stock. They don't have for me. They didn't have any real sense of like they weren't f too flimsy. Like there's a decent slap to the slap and 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 that. But again, they just they I, they just sound like they're yeah off a off someone else's library of sounds. 
um, they don't sound like they're for the game. They don't sound like they they sound other to mm. the game yeah, that you're playing. Yeah. And then combine that with what I think is, I completely agree with our correspondence, some of the least memorable quotes, tunes I can think of in a game uh, that just kind of burble away, not offensively at all. Not like, I mean, in a way it's preferable to really annoying tunes. Again, compared to, um, I know it, it's, we try not to directly compare, but it's. I find it quite difficult with the game, particularly in this genre, when there were so many kind of strong, famous examples around at the time. But thinking about some of the melodies in some of the other games that we've mentioned, the other 3D platformers of the time, and I guess they were going for something different, and that's maybe to their credit, but to not be able to hum a single song from an entire platform adventure seems a bit sad to me. So although yeah. I... I very much spent a, a good amount of time with the sound from this game. Uh, but the time I was going back to levels and, and revisiting them, I was uh, muting the sound to the game and listening to anything else. It's funny because it, it, it's, it's definitely, definitely the music I'm talking about here. It's definitely drawing some inspiration from the crash bandicoot trilogy from the PS one. But even that like had hooks, had memorable themes even if it kind of shared a similar sound palette whereas with this it's it's like it's aggressively mediocre it's it just doesn't want to inspire any emotional reaction from you whatsoever <laughs> it's 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 really odd um and that there's so many great opportunities to leverage music into like I, I, there are so many in 3d platformers there are so many great examples of you know music for snowy areas and i do actually think like mm. the snowy area in jack and daxter's one of my favorite um areas in the game yeah. and for it to lack that kind of like christmasy festivey feel through the music that so many other 3d platformers there's some sleigh have. bells <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's about it yeah barely detectable sleigh bells <laughs> but yeah it, it's just it's it does uh it it, it it it's it seems weird to say but like i do think it's an important part of this genre um like that personality through music and for it to mm. be absent uh feels really odd i i completely agree i i what I try to do before all of our recordings, I like to listen to the OST in the background when I'm just doing other things, you know, to kind of just get in the mode and just kind of see if I have any real things to say about the music. I didn't realize that, and, and I'm not sure if anybody else did either, and I, I wasn't sure if it was going to come up at all, but the the menu screen music is the music for the first three levels you play in. It doesn't change. Right. It's the menu, and then it's Geyser Rock, then it's Sandover Village. Those are all, it's the exact same music and mm. i just think about like not even just 3d platformers through time but like pretty much any any video game where like the first level you're put into is like that's when it has that chance to make that striking impression you know to like create that lasting image like we can all hum level one one themes from you know dozens of games probably and yeah. and this game just it manages to not do that at all and i'm not sure if maybe it's because there is so much focus on the incidental dialogue with daxter or the sound effects like you said leon um when i was playing this last week one of the things my my wife said she said that every time i punched a box open it sounded like i was blowing up 10 boxes with dynamite is what she said because like that, yeah. that just like absolute yeah wood shattering clang like every single time it just doesn't it doesn't do anything 
that I find particularly interesting. And it's a real lost opportunity, like Josh said, because like so much of what I associate 3D platformers with or, or even games in general, like you, your your emotions are tied to the music, your memories are tied mm-hmm. to the music. And uh, do I remember so much about Spiral Mountain from Banjo-Kazooie because it's a great level or because I because th- the music is burned in my brain as well as the character animations? I don't know. Uh, but this game definitely lacks in that regard. And I don't think there's one thing we didn't mention about the, the visuals on the technical side is there is a completely arbitrary and purely cosmetic day-night cycle, which actually creates, I think, some rather nice colouring and lighting effects over the land. But there's no, I don't think there's any attempt to make the music segue as the as the light changes or anything like that so it just continues to burble away speaking of the music uh this was like when i first heard you know especially those first few levels um music it definitely felt like they were trying to evoke the memory of crash bandicoot in using the same types of instruments and similar types of rhythms and i was just kind of waiting for those catchy crash bandicoot melodies to kick in and they just never did like it always felt like it was leading up to something that never ended up kicking in. And I was curious, you know, did they give the composer the instruction, like, just make it sound like this? And the composer wasn't quite up to the task, but this is the same composer. You know, Josh Mansell worked on all three of the mainline Crash Bandicoot games for Naughty Dog and uh, composed for the three Jack and Daxter games. Um, Obviously, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo jumped in for Crash Bandicoot 2, which I think that's is right. when the Crash Bandicoot music really kind of found its feet anyways. And I don't want to be casting aspersions onto uh, onto Mr. Mansell or to imply that, you know, it it takes talented collaborators to get the most out of his um out of his work. But I think, you know, even when Mark Motherspell was uh absent from Crash Bandicoot Warped, he had kind of set a certain momentum, a certain kind of a certain kind of sound and feel that carried forward mm. into Crash Bandicoot Warped, which benefited that game tremendously that, you know, it, it had its its sound, uh, that series at that point. And maybe it was just kind of a lack of that momentum and a lack of kind of that original inspiration that never mm. really, like, let this first game at least have its, um, its yeah. own kind of feel. And interestingly... He went to collaborate. He collaborated with Larry Hopkins for Jacks Two and Three mm-hmm. as well. So it's almost like he knows that he obviously he's not, you know not untalented, but maybe he needs somebody there as the kind of the vibes guy, you know, the, mm-hmm. or the or the melody guy. Maybe Old Bailey from the forum says it cannot be overstated just how impressive this game was at the time. It felt expensive, luxurious, even a big budget technological masterpiece with a level of polish we just weren't used to seeing. It was pure production value porn in an era before we started taking it for granted. It can be difficult to critically evaluate a game like this today. It's still a perfectly solid 3D platformer that controls well, offers plenty of gameplay variety and remains consistently entertaining throughout a pretty lengthy adventure. But the things that really made it special back in 2001 are no longer, well, special. It's a reminder of a time when booting up a new game for the first time held the possibility of seeing something unlike anything you'd ever seen before, and when a new console meant a truly mind-blowing generational leap forward. For that reason alone, Jack and Daxter will always be special to me. So we've heard a lot uh, from our correspondents about, uh, I don't think we've heard, uh, there's there's some to come about the, the, the controls, the feel of the game, the control of the character Jack. Uh, but I know from uh, pre, pre-show pre discussion that I'm not sure we all felt that it was quite as, 
it didn't handle quite as well as we were hoping. For me, it's and I, and I do worry that it's because I've gotten used to a lot of cheats that you know developers put into both 2D and 3D platformers to make the player feel good. Mm-hmm. And we talked a lot in the Celeste issue about, you know, stuff like coyote time and, and like yep. delays in terms of, you know, just giving the player like a little bit of leeway in terms of control so that yeah. even though they haven't nailed the timing, it just feels better if you you let them get away with it. Right. And it throughout, the, throughout this, I, I felt like the issue for me was that Jack and Daxter lacked a lot of that. It felt like there were like ledges that I thought I was close enough to grab <laughs> that it just didn't let me grab. The double jump, I mm-hmm. felt like I got the timing right. It didn't get quite land. And generally the feeling, like my feeling of the character in a space was always slightly off. With, yeah. you know, J- James, um, other other Rintz contributor James, always talks about struggling with Mario because he loses his position in space. I've never found that with Mario. With Mario, I always feel like I know exactly if I'm aiming for a platformer, a platform, sorry, I feel like I'm I'm, I'm almost certain if I'm going to land on Only it or not. Only in Sunshine would I say that they didn't get that right yeah. in, the, in the 3D platformers, which is why it's my least favourite one, I'm sure. Yeah. But with, with Jack and Daxter, there was this consistent feeling of not always like just missing platforms all mm-hmm. the time and and losing my sense of space like th- there are moments and i i don't want to characterize this as like absolutely miserable um there were moments in the game where i felt like i got a grasp for the unique way this game controls i got some of the timing down there are levels that felt designed around that and i felt like okay i'm having fun now but some of the later stages, um, I mean, we'll talk about the spider caves and the last, last level. It felt like it was asking of me. The levels were asking of me something that the controls were just not up to. It ended up being really, really frustrating in those more challenging portions. I love 3D platformers. It's like pretty much my favorite genre just because I love the joy of control and the joy of just running around and feeling like you're, you know, completely able to athletically cover whatever ground you want to cover and to find your way into all sorts of weird little nooks and crannies and spaces. And I think that there's a lot that this game does well. There's a huge variety of moves that you have access to. There's a really impressive arsenal of moves and oftentimes very interesting ways that they interact with each other. But I didn't feel like there was a lot of joy in the controls compared to yeah. a lot of the kind of greats of the genre, like, you know, Mario Galaxy, Hat in Time, Banjo-Kazooie. I just didn't feel that same kind of joy in controlling the characters. And there's a few little things that I was able to kind of pick apart. Um, I felt like the movement speed was a little bit too slow for how large the levels are and how much kind of empty space you were having to cover a lot of the time diving beneath the water to pick up eggs from under the water didn't feel great jumping kind of kills the momentum just a little bit like you're moving a little bit Mm. slower in the air than you would be if you were continuing on the ground so oftentimes you're kind of planning out your jumps you're you're counting on continuing the same momentum that you have built up 
And that's how you're making that calculation. And Jack and Dexter just goes a little bit too slow in the air. And you find yourself kind of grappling onto the edge of platforms way more often than you should. And I think the Mm. fact that the ledge grapple is such a generous mechanic is kind of an acknowledgement of the fact that it feels a little bit imprecise. There's also a pretty short window to activate the double jump. And oftentimes, if you're jumping off a really high object and you want to cover the most space, then you want to typically, in these types of games, you want to cover as much space as you can before you activate that second jump. You know, it's like the... You can't do that in this one. It's like the Diddy Roll in Donkey Kong Country. You want to, you know, get as much horizontal space before you before you commit to the stronger kind of vertical jump. And you really can't do that in Jack and Dexter. Yeah, again, there's a lot of really great stuff. And there's a lot of room to be very expressive with the moveset, which I I love that kind of thing. But it just doesn't quite feel right. And it feels so close, but it doesn't quite feel just right. Yeah, I I feel the same way as you you guys about the jumping. I actually think the on foot movement is pretty good. Um, I really love the way that the roll into the spring jump feels. Uh, I think that it, it offers a, a like a cool, fun way to travel because there are a lot of wide open flat spaces. Sometimes you have to travel, especially if you're backtracking at all. So it makes a nice way to kind of spring through those areas. Uh, I, I also think that the vehicle of the vehicle, excuse me, controls are quite good. I know some people get a little frustrated with them. Um, I thought that it makes a lot of sense now the way they moved with the franchise uh, moving more towards a kind of actiony, you know, driving and shooting game. Like I, th- I think the driving mechanics are, are, are really great. Sometimes I think that the ledge detection in that is pretty bad and I was falling off of the edges of right. uh, canyons yeah. a little too often when I was in there. But I really thought that stuff was was good. And and when that game, like Ryan, you just said, when that game has momentum, when you feel like you have momentum, it feels very good. But any time I let my feet left the ground oh, controlling Jack, I was relatively uncertain what was going to happen. Like, like yeah. I, mm-hmm. I would hit for that second double jump. I feel like I would hit it almost immediately, but I would register it too quickly. And then the next time I'd miss it because the other way and I found myself having to redo what should have been in my mind simple platforming challenges over again uh, because of the inconsistency in those controls or, or or at least my inability to replicate it in a consistent enough fashion to, to you know to fit the time windows and and also the double jump doesn't really grant you that much extra air either so sometimes I feel like I'd miss the distance or I'd miss the verticality of it it was it was never I was never comfortable with it that's for sure Sounds like we all had a similar experience, although I am mindful that there may be a few different things at play here. So I can't remember for sure because it was 20 years ago, but I do wonder if playing the original on original hardware on a cathode ray tube TV hmm, might yeah. have made a slight difference to, to the responsiveness. There may be a little bit of input lag with the HD versions and the emulation on the PS4 version that wasn't present. Another element and this would have been the case on the ps2 version as well of course is the one thing that the this game just wasn't able to have that the say the n64 examples of the genre that we've been mentioning has was an analog stick without a fairly large dead zone in the middle which was always a a factor with ps2 games ps3 games uh, I think you know they've they've come a long way with their controllers in the last couple of gens, uh, Sony. But there were always issues with games not feeling as responsive on PlayStation as they did on other platforms. If uh, if the analog you know was uh, was involved particularly, 
another issue, like I was going to say, Ryan was talking about the, the, the wide and varied move set. And while I wouldn't fully dispute that, I, I was going to say one of my criticisms of Jack and Daxter compared to, say, Banjo, was the lack of different ways of interacting with the world compared to the the bird and bear game but i <laughs> i looked at the the move set earlier as part of the IGN guide to the game and i realized that there were several moves that i never used the entire game because they're not tutorialized and i haven't read the manual for 20 years so so for instance there's a crouch jump for static high jumps which probably would have saved me a lot of pain i think there are a lot of jumps that i i was doing via the double jump the slightly unreliable feeling double jump that I probably would have been better off doing with a squat and high jump. But it's also telling, I think, that there are a couple of moves in the game that even the guide says you never really use this. So if you hold L1 uh, and and walk, you crawl. So it looks like there's going to be stealth type sections or going through underbrush or, you know, something like that. But you never need to use it as far as I can remember. Uh, there's a somersault as well if you if you just press L or R1 while you're running, but it d- doesn't actually do anything. The, the, big, <laughs> the big example for me from this most recent playthrough was I forgot that there was that super kind of uppercut punch. I yeah, know it, and there's yeah. one there's one orb. I can't remember what you have to do. You have to basically hit a pillar from below to knock it upwards to complete a bridge. I can't remember That's the exact right. challenge. It's right near the start of the game, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I, I remember, I'm looking at this, I'm like, am I doing something wrong? I'm jumping underneath it and you know so of course i uh, consult the internet and the internet was just like oh do the uppercut and i'm like wait there's an uppercut like it just like mm. completely flew over my head and it doesn't because it does give you that first tutorial zone it puts you through but it doesn't really put you through all the paces of the the move set read the digital manual folks <laughs> mr Ixalite from the forum says part of the appeal for me is the movement of jack which originally felt like my mario 64 moment in that I loved figuring out how to move about most efficiently and discovering all the hidden elements of Jack's moveset. Figuring out that roll jumps count as an attack and that it can instantly be followed by a higher than normal jump, or that jumping after a punch triggers an uppercut with increased attacking power, provided a type of satisfaction I'd never really experienced in gaming before. I still love that I can tie Jack's moves together into a bona fide combo of roll, jump, punch, uppercut, dive, bomb, spin that cuts through enemy throngs with ease and will use it constantly whenever I play. Even better is using a combination of dive, bomb, recoil and spin attacking to reach higher ledges than you're supposed to. And when you're juiced up with Blue Eco, watching boxes break open around you and machinery jolt into life, things get even better. It's a rare game where the movement has me thinking, could I maybe speedrun this? So Mr. Ixalite rather makes it sound sound like uh, perhaps we, certainly I, didn't get to grips with the full moveset and the, the possibilities for higher level play and, and maybe the enjoyment that comes with that. Oh, certainly, I totally acknowledge that. Like, I think the moveset is wide and varied enough to be super expressive, but I just, you know, just those little things that kind of hurt the feel for more casual play kind of slowed yeah. me down a bit. But I, I think all the tools are there to make this like a very expressive and very customizable uh, speedrun dream type of moveset. It's interesting. Uh, as I say, I I wonder if... Yeah, there there are various factors at play. I, I would be. In, I don't have a cathode ray tube TV or an original copy of the game to try it out, but I would be interested to see if it just feels better in in its original uh, purest format. Essel thirty seven talks about one issue with the game. I'm an inverted Y player, 
so I'm used to going into a game settings menu to change the toggle. Sometimes, along with invert Y, there's also an option to invert X. Well, Jack and Daxter makes inverted X the default system, but provides no option to change it. This, uh, I'm interjecting here, it does in the HD version, but not in the original, presumably. Essel continues, I persevered with the game for a while, hoping I would get used to it, but eventually, in desperation, I had to resort to Google, and it turns out there is a secret workaround to change this setting, thank goodness. I can't imagine what uh, what the later levels would have been like if my instinct for which way the camera was going to move was actually the opposite. Inverted X aside, the camera in general remained a problem throughout the game. Typical of 3D titles of the era, it would get stuck in scenery and leaps of faith would be required as you couldn't quite move the camera enough to see where to go. When the camera becomes locked to a certain viewpoint for gameplay reasons, judging angles can be tricky. As a result, I missed a few jumps that looked like they would be fine, and I found that sometimes when collecting orbs it wasn't immediately obvious exactly where they were in 3D space in relation to Jack. Couple this with some annoying checkpointing after failures, and it might be a case of bad workman blaming his tools, but this kind of issue was never a problem with Spyro or Ratchet. I encountered a bug in the final level which would cause a complete crash when collecting any of the mandatory power cells. Thankfully, Google came to the rescue again with another workaround. After slogging through the game up to this point, I wasn't about to let it beat me now. This is a game I completed 100% and got the Platinum Trophy for, so it must have been enjoyable at times. I just can't quite put my finger on what the good elements were. Perhaps some of the above criticisms are too harsh, but I got stuck in a feedback loop where my patience with the game got shorter and shorter and my playing became sloppier. I think we all know that feeling. Whatever the reason, the overall taste I was left with from this game was one of frustration and irritation. It's impossible to avoid comparing this title to Ratchet and Clank. That game was a joy from start to finish. The same definitely cannot be said for Jack and Daxter. I just because it was mentioned there, the checkpointing mm. was a point of frustration at several points during this yeah. game, yeah. where you. Like some cases, it actually was to your advantage because it checkpointed you after the point that you were trying to get past. Right. But most of the time, most of the time, it felt like it was so strict about, no, no, you are doing this challenge here, especially in the last <laughs> level. I I basically decided I'm not tackling this section now because it's frustrating me and it's it's driving me up the wall. So I'm going to find another sage and 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 rescue him instead. But no, it just kept checkpointing me at the same challenge every time I died, every time I fell down, and I just had to barrel through this challenging section. And for a game that emphasizes freedom of you know approach and freedom of you know exploration of those levels it being so strict about no you haven't done this bit yet so we're going to take you back here felt really aggravating yeah i i think i only had um yeah, I, I definitely experienced that with the checkpointing. For the yeah. most part, I didn't think it was too bad. And we should say this was a fairly early example of an kind of a standard Infinite Lives game, wasn't it? Relatively speaking, like uh, it was normally still quite possible to game over in kind of 3D platformers and the like at the time, whereas you can't as such in this. You can just keep trying, keep checkpointing and and you will get through it eventually, probably. Uh, I did have maybe just three or four moments where the camera really wasn't playing ball and a couple of moments where it actually did the thing of kind of trying to 
come up behind me and getting locked under a platform or whatever. But it, it wasn't, again, for the time, it wasn't unforgivably bad. And I think in, at least in one of those cases, I think it ultimately resolved itself. So it must have had some good behind the scenes kind of logic algorithms going on, sort of saying, yeah, the player can't see anything through that. So I need to jiggle myself around a bit. But yes, it wasn't, it wasn't always perfect. But um, again, I would still, this came out before Super Mario Sunshine. Yeah, that was um, I remember vividly playing this originally being like they've solved it. You know, they fixed the camera, you know, because like it used to be such yeah. a dead zone situation, especially if you're playing on Nintendo 64 where you know, you're operating with the C buttons. You didn't have a second stick. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I remember feeling like I had complete control and it really didn't trouble me this much uh, that much this time around. I, I was I was pretty pleased with the camera control. What I did have some problems with, and Josh already mentioned the checkpointing, was that like sometimes I what I hadn't realized, especially as I was going back and mopping up and getting some collectibles, like it would. So when when going back through areas, it would checkpoint you as if you were playing through the area the first time. So like sometimes you'd be on a, a way to a zone that maybe you had revisited before or, or or you left a power cell somewhere along and it would actually transport you back deeper in the level like you were progressing towards the final stage, yeah. you know, because because in the game's logic, that's what it assumed you were doing at the time. You weren't going back to kind of pick things up. So I found I found the last couple you know, hours I spent with the game kind of getting everything together. Uh, that was pretty uh, that was pretty frustrating f- from that standpoint. And I think that's just probably a sign of the of the times more than anything else you know they they just got better at those systems as time went on yeah we should say this is one of those games where again this was normal at the time but rather than being able to tilt the camera up and down at will you if you want to look up at your next platform you actually have to press the triangle button to go into a first person scope view yeah to uh to see what's coming up next which sort of i'm glad we left it behind but there is a certain immersion to it, I suppose. There are even some bits that, where the game actually asks you to kind of use that scoped look to shoot some boxes with eggs in, uh, precursor orbs, and uh, but those are fairly few and far between overall. Talking about lives, you do have health. Uh, you've got health divided up into three segments. Green Eco refills it. Uh, you can find it in crates lying around, coming out of enemies or vents that enemies that you pop or, or vents that uh, open up in the ground. You can restore, you can collect 50 small bits to, uh, or one big orb to restore one chunk. Uh, if you walk on a vent, you get all your health back. This felt like a, a, a slightly ramshackle and loose system to me. Like I never felt there was any real point to kind of collecting the chip. I would do it habitually, but I felt there was rarely a point to collecting the small chips of green health because normally if you, if you took any damage, it would be way more than you would collect through chips of health. You may as well kind of die and then restart another life with a full health bar. It does feel like quite a lot to ask 50 of these little collectibles and they're not, you know, they're, they're fairly frequent, but they're not absolutely all over the place. You know, maybe if it was 25 or something, then this could have been a Mm. bit of a better balance, but um, yeah, I don't know. It just, it it did feel like a lot. I found I was either running around with, in a lot of areas, I'd just have an almost infinite amount of health available to me. And then in others, it was like, I would take two hits and then I'd be on my last legs and, and I'd just be thinking, well, I may as well. Yeah, it's like, is it even worth clinging on to this last bit of health? Because I know I've got another couple of challenging sections up in there. And there are some bits that 
uh, again with with some of the issues that we've talked about with the maybe the the slightly imprecise controls and discompobulating camera there are bits where you can quite quickly take a two or three hits in a row and find yourself out of a life and Jack and uh, and Daxter giving you another hilarious quip about your halitosis. <laughs> we mentioned the blue eco and and the other kinds of eco that are around. Uh, so blue speeds you up and electrifies you effectively. Uh, red eco is uh, gives you uh, uh, well makes you stronger. Basically, yellow eco makes you it gives you the the ball of power that you can shoot. Some areas are actually there's a couple of areas in the game which are pretty much kind of top down shoot 'em up arenas but again i didn't find they were you know particularly exciting or satisfying dark eco sometimes is found in boxes uh, but they're often sort of dotted around in places where they're hard to avoid especially when you're on your your jet bike and whatever i find the manifestation of all of these powers pretty boring um i wish i wish these powers were more interesting than they are yeah i tend to agree it does it does kind of only add certain things like you would think they'd be used in more like challenge based situations like you know you need blue eco to power the jump pad so obviously you're going to see a blue eco vent um you know near like a jump pad section and that makes sense and there's some certain sections like i think scaling scaling the tower in the forbidden jungle for example where you kind of are timing out having to get the eco and then to get to the next jump pad avoid the enemies some of that can be interesting yeah but i feel it's yeah. mostly underwhelming like the areas they have you using it for you just kind of power up and then you're either powering up yellow eco shooting a few things or the blue eco you're just moving faster to get, kind of activate one of those um uh, like i don't even know what you call them it's like one of those lightning bolt blue eco things where it comes out of the ground and gives you a bunch of precursor orbs and and but it's never it never feels like it's really adding anything to the experience unless it's a section that's absolutely designed just specifically for that power up some of those i think are okay but uh but like you said it it doesn't it doesn't really do much of interest other than it was interesting you know to try to get from place to place a little bit quicker but the red eco i find almost completely forgettable because it's just it, yeah. it rarely ever used and and at least with the blue eco and and yellow eco there's like challenges designed for it certain boxes that won't break unless you're powered up with those but the red eco just kind of seemed like a fairly forgettable part of the game yeah i don't think there was anything as interesting as you would see in something like sonic colors where it was really kind of built around these power-ups that you would find in the environment that would drastically change the way that the game is played but um i yeah i i mean for essentially just kind of like bonus pads uh like you would find in a banjo kazooie or kind of these context sensitive things that give you like kind of short range abilities that you can you can use for what is kind of immediately around you like it's not a it's not an inelegant solution i think that there's and the fact that each of them kind of had supplemental effects unrelated to the puzzle solving made them feel kind of more naturalistically part of the world yeah i don't i don't know if it was if it was like immensely interesting at every step but um i I just don't really have super strong feelings about them let's talk about actually what we've sort of talked about the minutiae of of moving the character and some of the mechanics but actually what we spend most of the game doing is hunting for eggs and cells precursor orbs and the power cells and it's uh it's in a kind of super mario 64 layout in a way in that each of the power cells to an area has a small bit of text ascribed to it although some of them they only become apparent once you've interacted with 
uh, an object or or yeah somehow been given a you've been started off on on the path to to doing something so you might see a a little cutscene and then you'll know to pursue something to to try and get your cells i think most of the areas have eight but uh some of them some of them are quite sort of cheap and dirty which is the collect you know pay pay someone 90 orbs in the case of uh, one of the areas later on there's buy three in a row for 90 orbs each <laughs> yeah which uh which i i thought maybe they yeah i don't know maybe they must have run out of time or something for that but uh but more often than not there's um there's uh, a puzzle to be solved within the world uh, and i think for me that was probably where the game was at its most interesting where i was actually working out how to get to uh, and or how to earn the power cells across the world when thinking about this game in the context of 2001, I would have said at the time that I thought Jack and Daxter was right up there with some of the best 3D platformers of all time with kind of yeah. its in- ingenuity and kind of the, the way that it designed the layout of collectibles and challenges and things like that. And I think maybe part of that was being very excited to see one of my favorite game styles ushered into the new graphical era with a little more power behind it and polish and all those things. But when revisiting it now, um, I, I struggled to find a lot of the fun in collecting a lot of those orbs, uh, and, and, and power cells. Um, like it, the, so the power cell being your Mario 64 star or Banjo Kazooie jiggy equivalent, you know, and needing enough of them to open up the next section. A lot of times they were just kind of sitting out there, or you had to pay the 90 orbs, like you said, Leon. A couple of them had some interesting sections, like the Piranha uh, boss that you had to fight for one, or or in in the swamp, you kind of had to make it. You had to clear all four of the anchors that were tethering that right. airship. So some of them were like more challenge-based, but it was really only one or two of them in each area, and the rest were just kind of pay for this thing when as opposed to my favorite 3d platformers um that i think of and this goes back to your the 64 era and even up to now is that there was always kind of an interesting thing you had to do in order to unlock those and now playing it now just in the context of 2001 i was very impressed with it but in mm. the context of 2021 i was just i was almost profoundly bored um with wow with what it had me doing um for these and yeah. and i and i and i this game i held in very high regard and i still do in a lot of ways i think it i think it bridged a lot of new ground and did a lot of uh, interesting things but the actual collection of the things that you needed to move forward i didn't find it that interesting uh, it became even more apparent as I got further along. Like, I think I messaged us in the slack that I was I, you know, halfway through the game. I'm like, oh, I'm going to platinum this game because I'm just kind of picking up all the pieces as I go. So I might as yeah. well go through the motions and finish it, which I did. And I'm glad I did. I enjoyed my time, but I also found s- large swaths of the game to be not nearly as interesting as I remember them. I think there are a, cu- a couple of sections that kind of stood out for me as the game kind of doing what it does best um so like the i i already mentioned the snowy mountain um it's not particularly exciting platforming but it's the game at its vision like visually at its most appealing to me mm. and the stuff that you're doing in that environment is all quite fun i like the enemies in that like there's that the enemy with uh that grows spikes and just runs at you yeah it's quite I wish there novel. weren't those endlessly respawning enemies in that area though that would be my qualm about yeah. the snow area it's it's yeah it's a bit of that's kind of the one negative for me but like i i, I did like you know s- you know searching out the the uh the miners who are trying to 
excavate relics. Uh, I thought that was a quite a fun challenge. And then kind of invading the Thor area mm, there yeah. as well was really, really fun. Um, I also really like the, the boggy swamp that uh, Brian mentioned. I think some of the stuff that I forget the name of the bird, but like the, the chocobo. Oh, yeah. That uh, flut, flut. Flut, flut, yes. Flut, yeah. yeah, that, that, yeah. yeah like, that I good. thought some of the sections of that in that area were quite fun. The area itself had quite a, like, you know, again, it had a bit more of a distinct personality. But then I think of areas like the Lost Precursor City, mm. which felt like, you know, a couple of textures away from being like a white box environment in terms of <laughs> the the way it was laid out and the, and the level design. And then, like... The last area, Goal and Mayor's Citadel. Yeah, you love this, right? I hate that <laughs> level because it's just, it's entirely like platforms that fall out from under you, moving sections that don't perfectly line up with each other, where you have to get the timing and the precision just right. And if I was controlling Mario... I could believe I could do it, right. but with Jack, with Jack, I just it became like there was one section in particular where um, there were the coloured. It's like the, that coloured brick road thing, and it goes round a corner, and then it leads into a set piece where you have to shoot these tiny gremlins, which was also frustrating. But I just didn't have enough coloured bricks to get across. I eventually figured out that I needed to do a long jump and skip a whole section yeah, of it yeah. to, to get there. But even that, like, it, it felt like I had to do that five or six times before I nailed the timing of that. I fell down that. a lot. Yeah, absolutely. It just drove me up the wall. And then, there are a few pad, pad chucking, knuckle chewing moments. And I really don't like the spider cave either, um, just because <laughs> it's a lot of floaty pla it's not quite as frustrating as the last section um just because it's a bit more pedestrian but um it's a lot of floating platforms and then a lot of tiny enemies that swarm you yeah not a fan so if we're talking uh like specifically you met you brought up the spider cave there's a section of the spider cave that i absolutely love and it's kind of like these scaffolded like like platforms that lead up to the top of kind of uh, it's almost like a like a factory kind of area. It's it's deep in the spider cave, but there's a couple orbs there, and you had it, there's these um, disappearing platforms, and you have to uh, use yellow eco to shoot some of the enemies off the ledge. It's also got some of those fun flippy pole things. Kind of just an interesting series of platforming challenges, I I think. And it's got one of those zipper flies up there. Uh, what was it called? Scout flies? Zipper flies? What am I? I can't remember the name of uh, the, the rest of equivalent. Oh. I think Zipper is the name of the fly from Chippendale Rescue Rangers, but that's okay. a, that's <laughs> neither here nor there. But yeah, so I found that particular section of the spider cave to be really excellent. It was tight. It was small area, had a lot of different things going on, and I really enjoyed playing through that section of it. But in order to get there and enjoy it, I had to traverse through these areas that kind of Josh was just describing that were just so nondescript and, and didn't really hold anything of interest for for me personally. And, and so maybe it sounded a little harsh when I said it was profoundly boring, but it, that's just the way I felt. I felt that it, the game wasn't doing enough of putting the interesting pacing it out in such a way that I didn't have large stretches where I just felt like I didn't have a lot to do or what I had to do wasn't interesting. What was the level i can't remember which level it falls within now but there there was one section where you have to very carefully it's in a cave and you have to very carefully pick yourself 
up around walk up a wooden ramp and there's these uh minor enemies on there that's the level that brian's referring yeah. to right yeah. yeah okay yeah, yeah. yeah. uh yeah that that had took me uh, quite a few goes round, yeah, and then the and the checkpointing, yes, was um, harsh. Yes, yeah, yeah, tough section. But on the flip side, when I finally got to the end of it, I felt pretty satisfied, pretty like you know, like I'd played well and and whatever else. But yes, there were too many deaths along the way that I didn't feel were entirely just because yeah, maybe it was just slight control or camera issues. I'm going to kind of defend the collectathon. Uh, aspect of this, like the fact that even the cores that were just kind of purchased this for a certain number of eggs, like I still find that to be a kind of interesting challenge in a way, not the purchasing itself, but just the fact that it it ties these eggs back into this kind of main collectible. Um, I, I think a lot of it's probably going to come and it's probably going to align with how people feel about like Super Mario Odyssey's post game. Um, I really like to me, like the biggest jump between Mario 64 and Banjo-Kazooie, the biggest improvement that Banjo-Kazooie made was not kicking you out of a level after you get your, uh, you know, your objective marker in a way. And I like platformers kind of ever since then that reward you for just kind of exploring a big open space and allow you to kind of stumble upon the sub challenges and hidden items in any order that you want and just kind of place collectibles, whether they're the orbs or whether they are the occasional kind of hidden power cells, somewhere really high or somewhere that's just kind of out of reach that uh, challenges your brain to think like, how do I get up there? You know, what are the various ways I could take to yeah. to work that out? And that's that to me is more interesting than these like really heavily curated uh, linear segments of platforming obstacle courses is, is more of this, this kind of open, kind of creatively minded, like find a way to get to this object whether it's an egg or whether it's a power cell um, that's the kind of thing that i come to platformers for and i really live for and i feel like you know there's a i think that a lot of games have problems with communicating like the importance of lesser objects of collectibles along the way and sometimes you do start to feel pretty weighed down i think of the response to donkey kong 64 and how people felt like you know this is just too much there's just too much to collect. One banana. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one banana. Still missing one banana. But, you know, in its own way, like every single one of the eggs in here is a is a small kind of platforming challenge that the developers are putting out there. It's a, it's a you know, do you think you can get here? And sometimes it is just walking in a straight line along the ground. And that's, you know, whatever, but yeah, critical path. Yeah. But oftentimes they are hidden in very interesting places and very difficult to get to places. Sometimes they're used for signposting. Um, it really reminds me a lot of the kind of incidental moons in Super Mario Odyssey. You know, there's a lot in there that people will say, like, eh, all you have to do is pound on a glowing spot on the ground and it gives you a moon. Yeah. Like it kind of cheapens the experience. Mm-hmm. But to me, like, I like having those mm-hmm. little rewards along the way and I like being uh, rewarded for uh, exploring. I think, yeah, the, the, as I say, I think the game was, yeah, probably at, at its most fun for me when it was about actually as much about, yeah, just working out the path to something as it was getting there <laughs> when it was, if the, yeah, if the path involved kind of working out where one point in the environment relates to another point in the environment via a secret door or a circuitous path or something like that, that was almost as, as interesting as trying to, yeah, wrangle with the, with the slightly pernickety double jump and things like that. There were a handful, 
maybe three, four boss fights in the game. I can't remember too many. There's one. There's one quite early on in the precursor citadel. Is it? There's a like a piranha plant type of boss. There's uh, the big monster in the fire cave, which uh, I think I did it in my second or third attempt, but I, th- I thought it was uh, relatively pleasingly challenging and they made sure to keep the camera in a place where it wasn't going to cause a problem kind of thing. Uh, and the final boss, uh, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't loathe it as final bosses go. Uh, the, the very final section where you just collect a thing to finish it off was a bit weird but the 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 part leading up to that i thought it was a reasonable sensible level of okay i need to work out what to do and repeatedly execute these jumps without panicking and it wasn't identical each time because of the nature of some of the attacks of each of these bosses there was uh, it wasn't you could it wasn't something you could learn completely off down pat you had to actually observe shadows or fire rings or whatever to make sure that you were which sometimes can be more frustrating when when they introduce when a developer introduces random or relatively uh, unpredictable events into a into a boss encounter and not being able to learn the sequence but other times it keeps repeated tries a bit more interesting i find yeah, I think the final boss is one of those instances where the final boss of a video game didn't uh, frustrate me a lot um, in, in, the, in the sense that it was sufficiently complex enough to feel like a final boss without um, having that frustration level of why am I just doing this? You know, like why, you know, I'm beating my head against the wall for something that's probably not going to give me this. Like, it's not like obviously we talked about the story. It's not like I needed to see the conclusion of Jack and Dexter's arc, but it <laughs> yes. was one of those things that like, you, you know, you get to the end of a platforming game and you want a satisfying boss fight. And I, I think like most games that they're that you should only really have those boss fights if they're compelling and interesting. And I think Jack and Dexter does that pretty well. They never, they never yeah. felt out of place. They never felt forced. And I never felt like I, at the end of a level, I would just have to limp through something just cause it was there. You know, it, they always felt kind of naturally placed. Um, so yeah, I, I actually, uh, I actually enjoyed them for the most part. Um, I think one of the highlights was the, the it's just after the precursor basin, you have to activate the hut to levitate the rock out of the way. So you can get up to the top of that mountain. Mm-hmm. And right before the fire section, I thought I thought that was that was pretty enjoyable. Um, good use of yellow eco too in that fight. So I mean, I, I was playing this, finishing this today, so I, I breathed a bit of a sigh of relief yeah. um, when I realised that the final boss was as challenging as it is, um, or not as challenging as it is, because the, the the level leading up to the final boss, I had such a hard time with it, and I was fully. Because of that experience, I was half worrying. Like, if the yeah. final boss is anything like the level preceding it, yeah. like I might have to go to Leon today and go, I'm really sorry, but I have not completed Jack and Daxter, even though I had all the time in the world to finish it. But no, it was it was pleasant. It was very much a Simon Says kind of situation of like, I do this, you do this, and um, and it never felt like it required the precision or accuracy that the the levels themselves require. Ryan, any boss thoughts? Are you a general? I can't remember if you're generally somebody who gets a lot out of bosses, or whether you're one of us who li- likes a, a a minority of bosses in video <laughs> game history. I I tend to like bosses as like a place for the developers to show off some of their 
you know, art design and animation talent, you know, thinking back to Bloodboard and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But I, I'm not somebody who particularly looks forward to fighting bosses. Uh, No strong feelings about the ones that are in here. They're just kind of standard platform rebosses for me. You did them and they didn't make you cry. So that's a win. Yeah. Quote from Jason Rubin, the director of the game says, it was a game that in many ways I'm most proud of because it pushed the limits of things. Whereas Crash was more a case of taking something that already exists and making it work in a 3D world. The high quality bars we set for ourselves and a determination to not miss them is definitely a legacy that lasted after that. The reason that the Game of the Year awards land at Naughty Dog so often is because of those ridiculously ambitious thresholds that they just won't let drop. And they got a bunch more of those awards quite recently. We'll be covering The Last of Us Part 2 in the not too distant future. The emailer from the forum says, of its time, Brilliant in its time. Having a whole platforming game as one long, if linear, interconnected level was revolutionary in its time. Add to that well-handling platforming, diverting vehicle sections and wonderfully vibrant art design, Jack and Daxter was great in its day. The storytelling is basic and from a modern view things have aged, but we shouldn't overlook how good a game this was on release. Please note Jack and Daxter appeared as playable characters in Sony's smash-alike PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale 2012. Noted. (laughs) (laughs) I've got that game on PS Plus. Uh, Yeah, so do I. I've never never fired it up. I've played quite a bit of it. It's okay. (laughs) There was a Flash game developed as well and released in 2001 to promote the precursor legacy which was restored and made replayable by archivists and fans of the jack series in 2020 according to wikipedia didn't flash just die recently yeah right that's well, correct. They, yes uh, but i presume that archive version is still playable with old versions of flash or whatever mr Ixalite finally from the forum says After four consecutive years of receiving Crash Bandicoot games for Christmas, I vividly remember playing Jack and Daxter on December the 25th, 2001, stopping only so as not to complete this wonderful thing too quickly. The mere fact that the game just lets you keep collecting things in this huge world with no loading or returning to a level hub felt revolutionary to me. And it's still a game that I'll cane and rinse to 100% completion whenever I pick it up. In terms of presentation, cartoonish visuals always hold up the best over time, and this is absolutely the case here. The vibrant colours that make each location really pop, and the bronze precursor structures really stand out. The characters may be thin, but they are spiritedly performed with good designs, and the animation for the leads and enemies is impeccable. This also elevates the threadbare plot. Still, Jack and Daxter is the epitome of a comfort game for me. Very nice. We also have a few three-word reviews from Twitter. Follow us at Kane and Rince. Scott Lamond says, Dexter is annoying. Richard Burt says, Crash Bandicoot evolved. Mr. Ixalite says, Slam Dunking Collectibles. Eric McCalls says, Charming Expressive Graphics. Connor Cleon Clark says, No Loading Times. Joe Bonobo says, Beautiful Immersive Fun. And David Rush says, Wow. A forgotten masterpiece. Well, we didn't forget it. That's why we're here. Uh, Not sure any of us in summary is going to use the word masterpiece, but (laughs) especially not Josh, who'll be going first. Josh, summarize your feelings on Jack and Daxter. So I think the most damning thing I can say is that going into playing Jack and Daxter, I had a question which was... Why did Ratchet and Clank stand the test of time, culturally speaking, Hmm. whereas Jack and Daxter just kind of 
stayed in the PS2 era with a couple of ventures outside of it, but not really succeeding to break out. I feel like I have the answer to my question after after playing this. I think when you look at Ratchet and Clank, even in, in that, that first game, those two characters have so much personality and charm, and Clank in particular as a side character is very endearing and very lovable in a way that Daxter just is not. I find Daxter repulsive, despite the fact his (laughs) animation is fantastic, despite the fact that the vocal performance is really professional and well done. I find Daxter repulsive. And then Jack, as somebody said during the recording, is a husk. He's an empty vessel. And there's nothing... Yeah, yeah, and an enabler to the misogynist weasel next to him. The, the that that all aside, though, I think the game itself, if if you stripped away all of the theming and the characters and and just looked at it as a pure platformer, I think it's okay with moments of you know real frustration, but then moments where it's uh, it's kind of fun and it works. I'm actually kind of curious to check out the sequels, as weird as that sounds, given how nonplussed I am about this first game, because like the ambition sounds really interesting to me, because this this game felt so bare bones and kind of skeletal in a lot of ways. The idea of them going a little bit off the you know off the wall and and going off off road sounds really interesting so i i'm actually quite willing to give jack 2 and jack 3 a chance and and to see how they are i think what you may find josh is that you'll find that daxter is revolting and jack is an asshole <laughs> rather than yeah, being yeah true enough um and maybe <laughs> I'll, I'll bounce off of it um much like brian did back in the day but um i'm willing to give it a chance but yeah i i i did not it's fair to say i did not fall in love with uh, uh this game and, and i'm probably not going to check it out again in future yeah, uh, I was probably hoping to enjoy this a bit more than I actually did when I put it on the list. That said, I didn't. I definitely didn't hate playing it. I didn't hate Daxter quite as much as Josh did, but that may be partly to do with the fact that I ended up listening to a lot of the game. Uh, well, not listening to a lot of the game <laughs> by by replacing the uh, the weakest element for me, which was the probably the the audio in total uh, with my own podcasts and music. It's yeah, it's weird how at the time this was definitely uh, a real sh- you know showcase for the PS2 and for Naughty Dog's development talent in a number of ways, but it still for me falls into so many of the traps that often Western develop- developed platformers have always done with just not feeling quite as good as I want them to, as as good as their Japanese peers do with audio effects that are just not they don't feel right they're not of their place that that they don't they don't make my head tingle in a way that uh that sound effects from other games do and give you that 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 rush and that buzz uh but overall as i say i think the game stands up visually really quite well especially the the ps3 version uh which is uh yeah i think it genuinely still looks pretty nice uh even compared to some relatively modern titles. Obviously, you know, fewer polygons and fewer environmental effects and alpha effects and all that kind of thing. But it, it's a, it's visually, I found it easy on the eye. Uh, the gameplay, though, yeah, again, 
uh, a lot of the the issues that I often find with with games of the genre, particularly those developed outside of Japan, with just slightly pernickety jumping and cameras and and a, a slightly underwhelming whelming move set, and the least said about the kind of the plot in inverted commas and whatever else, the better. Certainly, I wouldn't strongly recommend it as something to go back to, but if you are a fan of the 3D platformer, a genre which there aren't so many examples around now, this uh, and you never got around to finishing this one, but you loved Banjo-Kazooie back in the day and maybe A Hat in Time more recently and stuff like that, there are probably, there are pleasures to be had here. The collecting and the jumping from level to level. But overall, yeah, I think uh, the 20 years haven't been perhaps as kind to this one as I was thinking they might have been. Ryan? This is an interesting game. It feels like a transitional step into the next game, which would be a masterpiece. (laughs) You know, we've seen games like this before where sometimes it takes the developers a little bit of time to find their feet. They have some good ideas at the first game, and then they really kind of knock it out of the park with number two. Jack 2 goes in a very different direction. And so I don't feel like we ever really got like the follow-up to what this game was setting up. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious what that second game would have been. (laughs) But I feel like this game is both kind of impressive in what it is able to accomplish and the kind of diverse moveset that it gives you and the expressiveness of play of the animation especially how kind of cartoony and nice and squishy and stretchy all the characters are like it's super impressive to be doing this not only in 2001 which it very much is but with 3d models in general like it's it's just not easy to do any of this stuff and make it look half as good as it does but there's a lot of things in here as well that feel even at the time behind the times as well, there's just not as strong of of um, level design as you would see in a Banjo-Kazooie or even in a Donkey Kong 64. There are more problems with the controls, just kind of little tiny things that add up over time. Uh, as far as I mentioned before, the jump momentum was a big thing for me uh, that felt like they had been solved at this point and like there was a pretty solid like way forward in uh in 3d platformers at this time it's yeah and so i have a hard time kind of making up my mind on this one as to whether or not i would like firmly recommend it it's um you know it's a bit jankier than a banjo kazooie that you would be playing just for the sheer joy of platforming and so i couldn't recommend it over a banjo kazooie or a mario galaxy or a hat in time or something like that but it's uh it's also you know it also has that has that kind of joy of being able to kind of like very creatively platform your way up of complex objects and kind of sometimes jam yourself in polygons where you're probably not supposed to be to get a good angle on the (laughs) next jump which i love that kind of thing like to me like that era of uh psychonauts and and kind of janky-ish platformers that allow you Mm. to break the rules pretty consistently like that's that's so much fun for me like that is the parkour Mm. of platforming as far as i'm concerned uh and so you know going back to it like i did uh i did enjoy the the tool set the uh a lot of the ideas the um just this kind of era of early slightly janky platformers like i i have a real soft spot for this i i 
I don't think it Jack and Dexter did anything in particular that like fully won me over, but I recognize that there's a ton of potential here that um, I'm curious what it would have led to if they had continued making platformers from this. And, and, you know, maybe there's enough examples of uh, this doesn't feel entirely dissimilar from Sly Cooper. And so, you know, maybe if I, look at the later Sly Cooper games, then I can get a little bit of an idea of how this type of game would have generally felt. Uh, But uh, it's it's an interesting inflection point in video game history that uh, went in unexpected direction. Uh, But um, I'm I think there's there's plenty of ideas here that uh, that make it still worth looking at. I do agree. And as much as I'm a fan of Naughty Dog's modern serious games it does make you wonder looking at insomniac and uh their ps5 work which is looking quite you know uh exceptional mm-hmm. uh, with uh, a rift apart obviously ratchet and clank is a bit more shooty smashy than than jack and daxter was but it, i think they they share certain traits don't they and the idea that the modern naughty dog studio could work on a a, a big yeah something a bit lighter more cartoonish colorful platform adventure would be it would be quite something i would imagine given what they given what they tend to do with uh, with the tech and there are precious few studios these days that are doing big budget 3d platformers you know you have nintendo you get uh, double fine is putting out psychonauts 2 later this year but you know as far mm. as the 3d platformers go it's mostly within the indie scene i would say and then even then yeah. 3d platformers are hard to create and so you know apart from a few kind of real standout success stories. Like you do still kind of feel that push against budget. Well, let's finish up with, I think probably the most positively disposed towards Jack and Daxter, Brian. I I'm certainly positively disposed from, uh, in, in the 2001 lens. Um, I, I loved this game when it came out. I, I ate it up. Um, and I, I tracked down every orb pre easy to access guides to find them. Um, it's funny now looking at this uh, for through the 2021 lens because I, I really didn't enjoy it nearly as much as I expected to. Uh, coming yeah. back to something is that I that I love um, in 2001, but I also kind of think there's a maybe it's maybe I'm trying to convince myself to be more positive than I am, but I, I find something a, like a little bit beautiful about the fact that some things just don't feel like they used to. You know, there there's a there's a there's a satisfaction in that, that this game was of a place in time. And I think in thinking about the impact um, on both Naughty Dog as a company and on just kind of the 3D platformer space, it was kind of unclear what the focus or what what the the evolution of 3D platformers was going to be. And I think that Jack and Daxter tells an important part of that story to where like the formula had kind of been figured out for lack of a better term. And this was another game in that neck, that stepping stone that leads to your your Mario galaxies that needs leads to your um, your Astrobots um, that, that leads to like, hey, where where does this next where's the what's the next step for this genre and i think in 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 historical context it is um it is an important stepping stone and also it led to naughty dog's next work you know once naughty dog went from jack and dexter the next thing they made was uncharted and then it it evolves into the naughty dog that we know now so i think it from a history perspective i think it's important but from an actual 
do I recommend you go out and play Jack and Dexter uh, right now? I'm, I don't think I can recommend that uh, to anybody. But what I will say is that after playing it now, I bounced so hard off Jack 2 back in the early 2000s that I didn't think I'd ever want to play him. And now um, I'm planning on moving on to Jack 2 sometime in the next couple weeks here. So uh, just to kind of see what that's all about. So I do think it still offers uh, something if you want to dip back in. Cool. Yeah, I was just thinking about talking about modern role recent-ish 3D platformers, of course, I think one of the most highly regarded and, and well-loved examples is locked behind the PSVR paywall, as it were, in uh, Astrobot Rescue Mission, which uh, which I have played a little bit of and thought was pretty wonderful. And obviously I've played the, the freebie with the PS5, which I know is kind of you know, along the same lines and, and I thought it was pretty excellent. So I wondered if... Yeah, if that if that wasn't a PSVR game, obviously it wouldn't be the same game. But um, perhaps it would have gone some way to reigniting some love for the genre. Anyway, I'm sure there will be more examples in the future. And what goes around comes around and all that. But for this issue, it remains for me, Leon, to thank Brian, Josh and Ryan, as well as our correspondents. And of course, to you for listening next time in issue 471, talking of VR, will we cheat the Kobayashi Maru test? in our Star Trek Bridge Crew podcast. <laughs>